And the uh, reading today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 40, but starting at verse 17 and not verse 1, as it says up there, and it's on page 95. And this sets out all the rules and procedures for setting up the Jewish tabernacle. That's it, that's better. And, um, and the procedures which are still observed by uh, the Jewish uh, people to this day. So starting at 17. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent, as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. He then brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and then set out the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain, and brought fragrant incense on it, as the Lord commanded him. He then put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. This is the word of the Lord. And thank you, Christine. I'm going to uh, invite Kate up here, and uh, I'd like to pray for you, if that's okay. Lord God, thank you for bringing Kate to us this morning, and thank you for the... Uh, preparation that she has put into 
the word that she's going to speak to us this morning. I pray that you would bless those words. I pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts uh, to hear what you want to say to us individually and as a church family. And we just invite your Holy Spirit to be with us here now. Amen. Great. There we go. So last week, David was talking about heaven, which is the place where God has paramount influence, where he decides what is good and what is evil. And uh, in the Garden of Eden, we get a picture of God. I'm going to do it like this because it will kind of show you what I mean. Got the place where God has paramount influence, but he gives responsibility to people, doesn't he? So there's a realm where people have responsibility and greatest influence. And in the Garden of Eden, we see that actually those two are together. And that's how God wants it. When we, um, after the fall, after people sort of turn their backs on gods, it's like they separated. And it's not that they occupy two different places. It isn't that heaven's over there and earth's over here. And somehow when we die, we get a fast track over to there. Um, they're not physical, different physical spaces. They're kind of different realms. N.T. Wright, I don't know if anybody reads N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, which is all about heaven, um, he, he talks about most parallel universes. I don't know if that's a helpful picture for you, but that's two things going on in the same space at the same time, but not acknowledged or seen um, possibly by each other or just one way. And so we live really in a situation where often we don't acknowledge or recognize God at work. God is at work. I'm sure that God is at work in our lives far more than we realize every day. But we don't recognize it. Um, I'm just going to read a bit from the magician's nephew. We had a little person in here, but has she gone? Great, there won't be any spoilers then. That's fine. <laughs> um, I don't know if you know the book, The Magician's Nephew. It's the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Um, what people would now call the prequel to <laughs> The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It tells how we actually, how, do you know the story of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe? Yes, where the wardrobe and where Aslan, the lion, uh, representing Christ, lives and reigns. And there is this wardrobe that a group of children find, and through that they can actually enter this realm where Aslan reigns. And um, the stories are their adventures in that. But in the prequel, um, in the first book, we find out how the wardrobe came to be. I'm not going to tell you. You have to read it, okay? But at some, at one point, Narnia is founded. This land where Aslan is the king um, is founded, and there are a couple of children and um, their uncle who are in this land, and they're watching it start. And Aslan sings, and Aslan speaks, and he speaks to animals who also speak. And the children are sort of caught up in all of this. But Andrew, Uncle Andrew, who is with them, is a bit of a, 
um, a bad character, let's say. He is not interested in this new world except for the power and the money it might make him. He wants to take, pe take people to this land so that he can make lots of money. He's not interested in who Aslan is. He's not interested in relationship with this lion. And um, let me just make sure I'm on the right page here. <coughs> so talking about Uncle Andrew then, what he saw as Aslan was speaking to the animals, all he saw or thought he saw was a lot of dangerous wild animals walking vaguely about. When the great moment came and the beasts spoke, he missed the whole point for a rather interesting reason. When the lion had first begun singing, long ago when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song. And he disliked the song very much because it made him think and feel things he didn't want to think and feel. Then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might in a zoo in our own world. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Whoever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He did, soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon, he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He only heard a snarl. I think that's a bit like where our world is, humanity is, that actually, in many cases, we've got to a point where not only do we not recognize God, but actually we can't recognize God. We couldn't recognize him if we tried. And that is why this series is so exciting. Because after that separation where these two realms came apart, we see again and again and again God reaching out to people because he loves them, because he wants an ongoing relationship with people, because he wants constant connection with people, because he loves them. And we know that he loves them. And, and if, if this is the only verse we know in the Bible, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die that, can you finish it off? That whosoever believes, that's right, will not perish but have everlasting life. I probably mixed up several versions there. Because, you know, you learn it in one version and then you get a more modern version and you, yeah. We know that God acts out of love and again and again and again he reaches in. 
In a minute, we'll look at the tabernacle, but there are a couple of other times before we get to the tabernacle where God reaches in to speak to people in quite an amazing way. I'm not going to read them, um, but if you, I don't know if anyone takes notes. Genesis 28, verses 10 to 17, we have Jacob. Now, Jacob, his name means deceiver, and he's gone about deceiving quite a few people. He's deceived his father, he's deceived his brother. Um, his mother sent him off to find a wife somewhere else so that his brother won't get, get his revenge. On his way to this new place, and he has to stop for the night, and he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a stairway that reaches from earth to heaven. Now, for us to talk about heaven, it's easier to talk about them as heaven's one physical space and earth's another physical space. And it's easier for, for us to picture it like that. And that's what the dream pictures it like, that there's a stairway from earth to heaven. There are angels going up and down on these stairs. And God speaks from that place to Jacob. And what he does is he reiterates the promises he gave to Abraham that there would be a nation, that they would have a land, that they'd have a special relationship with God, and that they would be a blessing to all people. And Jacob wakes up in the morning, and this bit I will read. Um, if you're following it, it's verse 16, uh, Genesis 28, verse 16. Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he thought, surely... The Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Now, God was there, but Jacob hadn't seen it. He hadn't recognized it, and he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? Doesn't that sound like 21st century English? How awesome is this place? Okay. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. What's a house? A house is where somebody lives. They live there. They make their home there. They are settled there. This is the house of God. This is where God lives. He's settled here. And what is a gate? Is a gate where you pass from one place to another. This is a place where I can pass, if you like, from earth to heaven and heaven to earth. This is a meeting place. This is a crossing point. This is a place where there can be interaction between God and his people. A place where heaven touches earth. Moses and the burning bush. Moses sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up. And he goes to have a look. He, he had, goes to have a look to investigate And God speaks to him from that bush and he says, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. God is here. Now you, Moses, acknowledge that. You've seen something. Now I'm speaking to you. Recognize that I am here. This is my space, my place. Moses on Mount Sinai, the cloud of God's presence come down comes down onto the mountain. God says to him, I'm going to speak to you. I will come down as a cloud of presence, my presence, and you're to come up to the mountain. God that initiates him, 
God gives a dream. God sets the bush on fire. God says, I'm going to speak to you, and he comes as a cloud. God initiates it because he wants relationship. He wants to talk with us. He wants to live, to dwell with us. Then in Exodus 25, verse 8, he says to, to Moses, um, let them, the Israelites, make a sanctuary for me where, and I will dwell among them. In the case of Jacob, in the case of Moses in the burning bush, in the case of Moses on the mountain, it was um, not a temporary thing necessarily, but it, it, didn't, it wasn't a lasting thing. Those instances weren't lasting. The burning bush was only a moment. But now God says, I want to dwell with my people. But God's presence is so glorious that we can't actually come and see it. We'd be consumed by his holiness. So he says, make me a house, a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a place where people can come to God's presence. Where his presence is somewhat veiled from them because they can't actually stand in that glory. Even Moses couldn't see God's face. He had to see God's back or where God had just been. But now God says, I want to live in the midst of my people. They had to build a tabernacle in the middle of the people, not over there somewhere, but right in the middle where the people were. They would see it. They could come to it. It was um, a place where they would meet God, where God's presence was, and they, they knew they could come there and meet with God. He wanted to dwell in the middle of his people. He wanted to dwell long-term, not just a one-off meeting, but long-term. God doesn't kind of run up to your door, knock on the door, throw your message and run away. You know, he actually wants to live, put down roots in one sense, settle. He wants long-term relationship. He wants constant connection and if you look at the tabernacle and I won't read it because it kind of comes in little bits but the symbolism of what goes into the tabernacle so there's a beautiful description of the lampstand which is um, made in, it has buds and blossoms of almond flowers on it flowers angels Gold, jewels, they are to remind the people of the Garden of Eden. Flowers you find in a garden. To remind the people, but also you have angels, so you have earthly realm, heavenly realm. You have gold, glory, jewels, glory. And it's to remind the people that actually heaven and earth together. It's to remind them of what was God's desire to be together and what is God's desire to be together. One of the saddest verses in the Bible, it seems to me, let me just find this because I wasn't going to read it, but I will. Um, 
one of the saddest verses in the Bible, or a few verses, in verse, uh, Exodus 20, um, verses 19 to 21. God's given the people the Ten Commandments, a law given by God to help that harmonious relationship. Because when the relationship was broken in Eden, there was a barrier put up. And that barrier is partly still there. That's why we can't stand in God's presence. Because there is such a thing that we call sin. It's like a barrier between us and God. So the Ten Commandments were not given as restrictions. They were given as, this is how we can live in harmony. And the the people had just received the Ten Commandments. And... um, And God came and, and, and he, he came as a cloud and thunder and lightning and he spoke to Moses. When the people saw, so I'm in verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. But the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. The people had a chance at that point to have a close relationship with God and they went, oh, no fear, (laughs) no way. This is too frightening. This is beyond my comfort zone. It's too frightening. You speak to God, Moses. We'll listen to you. But we don't want that direct relationship with God. Incredibly sad, I think. So the tabernacle was God's way of dwelling in the midst of his people in a way that they could actually support. You know, they they weren't going to be consumed by his glory. It isn't that God isn't anywhere else. It's just that that was a place where they knew that they could come to the presence of God. And the, 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 the really exciting thing is it, that's not the end of the story. And in your series, you have, um, I, won't, I won't steal other people's sermon, but you have other instances where God reaches in because he wants relationship. We think of Jesus as the ultimate breaking in of God, God with his people. Actually, it's not ultimate in the sense of the end. (laughs) Because actually, after Jesus' death, which was absolutely essential for the rest to happen, God dwells not just with us, but he can dwell in us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us in us when we come to Christ. I don't think you can get any closer than that. How amazing that God, when the people left God, they left the garden. So often when we read the Bible, they turn their backs on God. They've been given an invitation to have a kind of face-to-face relationship with God and they've said, no, thank you. We don't like this. We're not comfortable. Moses, you do it. 
And yet God loves so much, he still comes back again and again, reaches in again, deeper, deeper, deeper. Ultimate, not ultimately, penultimately perhaps, not even. And Jesus, God himself comes and dwells amongst his people. And after his death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells, not with us, but in us. And so I'd like to say, if you're not in that position today, if you feel that you don't really know God, if you feel that you don't know this Holy Spirit stuff is a bit beyond your comfort zone, if you feel that perhaps you don't know God with you or God in you, then find someone who does, who you know does. Could be me, but it's probably better if it's someone that you're going to see week on, week on. Um, Pray, seek God together, ask God. Jesus says you don't have because you don't ask. <laughs> you know, Ask God to come, be with us, be in us, transform us. Let his power work through us to other people. Because God does come and reach out. He's reaching out to every single person. He doesn't want anybody to be in a position where they don't know him. And they're not part of his family. So I encourage you, if you've known God for decades, there's always more. I have a friend who always, who always says, at the end, every time I see him, the best is yet to come. There's always more in Jesus. Okay. So I'll leave you with that thought. There's always more. Press in. <laughs>